We are in Matthew chapter 13. We're doing uh, summer through the parables, and we started last week by looking at the reason for parables. We had to study the entire chapter of Matthew 12, look at the four contexts, the, the conflicts that Jesus went through with the Pharisees and the religious leaders to see why he began speaking in parables. Um, he did so intentionally. He did so purposefully. Uh, he did so that he would veil the truth from those who would not believe so that no more judgment would be heaped on them. And also, as they are not believing in him, he's going to give the word to those who would press in to his teaching and believe. We gave three reasons why we are going through this series. Number one, there's just nothing better than sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing him speak. And by the very nature of what the parables demand of us, we will have to press in all the more to understand and to hear him. Number two, there's many misconceptions as to why the parables even exist. And so we had the opportunity last week of looking at why they exist. And hopefully if somebody would ask you, why does Jesus teach in parables? Why does he go that direction? He was teaching clearly for a long time. Now, why does he all of a sudden shift? Now you have an answer for that from Matthew chapter 12. And lastly, these parables, many are familiar, some are not. And so what I love is looking at the familiar texts and diving in all the more deeply into them so that we can see even new nuggets and new gems and new diamonds of truth. And then also to look at the non-familiar ones and to see very clearly the harder parables to understand and what they mean. And we're going to take a couple of those this summer. So what is a parable? Just by way of reminder, a parable, two Greek words, uh, para and balo stuck together. Parable just means uh, to throw alongside. So it's a, a short word picture, a simple story that illuminates a profound truth. You're throwing a simple story alongside of a spiritual reality and you're comparing the two together. Um, that's where we get the word parable from. We talked about the four conflicts as to why Jesus began teaching this way. We saw the conflict over the Sabbath uh, with the picking of the grain. Then we saw the conflict in the synagogue of healing the man with a withered hand. Then we saw the conflict of the demon-possessed, blind, and mute man being healed. And Jesus, after doing that, uh, the, the crowds turn to him and say, okay, what are we going to do with this? They turn to the Pharisees. They say, this guy looks like the Messiah. He acts like the Messiah. He speaks like the Messiah. And now he's fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah 42 that the Messiah must do. He's the Messiah, right? And the Pharisees say, no, he is doing it by the power of Satan. So the third conflict, we gave the title of the unpardonable sin. Uh, we discussed that a lot on Sunday and on Thursday night. And then finally, they desire signs. The fourth conflict, we desire signs. The Pharisees say, show us some signs that we might believe in you. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. And then as his family comes back, they say, look, it's your family members. They just get to ride into the kingdom because they're related. And Jesus says, no, it's only those who hear my word and receive it who are a part of my kingdom. And from that moment on, he begins to speak in parables. To those who do not believe, I will conceal and hide the truth. To those who would believe, I'm speaking directly to them, and they're going to press in even if some of these things don't make sense. Parables are divine judgment against those who would oppose Jesus, and they're also divine grace by not heaping more condemnation of truth that they would be accountable for on their heads. So we pick it back up in Matthew 13, the first parable that's recorded for us here in Matthew, and more than likely one of the first parables that Jesus ever did speak, because right off of the heels of those conflicts, he says, I'm going to start veiling the truth to some and revealing it to others. So let's pick it up. Chapter 13, verse 1. That day, Jesus went out of the house. So it's the exact same day that all of this has been going on. 
And he was sitting by the sea and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and he sat down and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. So he's been in these circumstances before where many crowds gather around him, large crowds press into him. So he's learned, let's stand on a boat in the water so that I can be there and all the crowds can come up to me, but I'm not going to get smushed in the middle of the group. And he can speak out to, from the boat, out to the land. Um, If you've been to Israel, you've been to some of these exact locations where they believe that Jesus probably spoke parable of the sower or probably taught the Sermon on the Mount. Um, He is speaking. There's a kind of a uh, an amphitheater like structure in the northern part of Galilee where if Jesus were to say a word and uh, we, we did this when we were in Israel. You can speak just like I'm speaking to you now. And, and even if you're a, a ways away, you're able to hear it because of the way that the topography uh, is looking and is structured. So Jesus does that, stands in the boat and starts teaching. Verse 3, he spoke many things to them in parables. And this is the first one that we're seeing. And he says, behold, the sower went out to sow. The sower went out to sow. What he's going to describe to an agricultural mindset makes total sense. Um, to our minds, it's a little bit less uh, clear because we're not an agricultural society. We don't have uh, people going out and sowing seed. You're not driving down the 101 seeing all these farmers sowing their seed there. But this is very clear to those who are not a part of a concrete jungle. What is going on um, as the sower sows the seed. It would be a farmer, a sower with a bag and a bunch of seed on his side. He would take a handful, and as he's walking down the path, he would throw it, uh, trying to scatter it evenly into a field that had been plowed, ready to get the seed, to bear the fruit, to grow, uh, and to bring a profit. So, uh, very simply, you are familiar with this account. There's four soils, and we're just going to take that. This is a simple story, and we're going to take those four soils as our outline this morning. So, the first soil. Verse 3, the sower sows. And verse 4, first soil, as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road. The birds came and they ate them up. So the first soil, we can call it the roadside soil. The, the, the soil that's by the road or on the road, literally, literally it is the road. Um, this is a description of the path that the sower would take to walk around the field. So you have a field that's been freshly plowed, ready for the seed to go in, and you have a path that the sower would walk on to throw the seed. So he doesn't step in the freshly plowed field. So he's walking around this non-fenced-in area, and the seed just falls there, and birds come and eat it. Luke describes in Luke chapter 8, verse 5, that the sower himself would even trample on the, uh, the, the seed and others that were walking on the path would trample on it. So nothing happens. The seed bounces off the ground as, as if it were concrete. The second soil, verse 5, others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. So number one, we have the roadside soil. Number two, we have the rocky soil. Rocky places, uh, Jesus says. There isn't much soil. This is not uh, rocks in the soil. A lot of people think that this is rocks just in the soil, and so as the seed's going in, it's struggling with rocks. That's not the case here, because if it were, that would be a disgrace to whoever plowed this field. As you're plowing the field, you're picking up rocks and you're throwing them out of the field. So this is a freshly plowed field, no rocks in it. 
This is the description. The word literally is bedrock. Uh, This is the description of a slab of limestone about 8 to 10 inches underneath the soil. So the sower can't see it. The plower can't see it. He's plowed the field, and that plowshare would go about 8 to 10 inches deep into the soil. So he feels like nothing's um, digging up against there. So he's fine. He's plowing the soil. And the field looks great. No rocks in it, but about 8 to 10 inches below the soil, there is just a slab of limestone, a bedrock. The reason why the the seed springs up, Jesus describes, immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. That took me so long to figure out what that meant. Immediately they grew because they had no soil. That doesn't make sense. Here's what's happening. As the seed goes into the the soil and it starts to grow roots down deep, the, the majority of the energy that's spent in a plant's life is spent growing down into the soil. But if those roots hit that bedrock, the plant says, we don't need to spend energy going down anymore because we've hit the bottom. Can't spend energy doing that, so let's spend energy going up now. So immediately it would spring up because there was no more energy left needed to be spent on going down. There was no place to go. So a farmer in that day and even today would know if he sows a bunch of seed And they all start popping up together and there's one or two in one little location that just instantly spring up and look luscious. That's not a good thing. That means it's hitting something and all the energy is shooting up into the top side of the of the uh, plant and of the soil. So that's not a good thing. And that's what Jesus describes. So it doesn't have roots going down. It can't go further. So when the sun rises, it scorches the plant because it isn't able to take all the nutrients and specifically the water deep down in the soil. So it withers away. That's the rocky soil. Number three, the thorny soil. So we've got the roadside soil, the rocky soil, and then the soil that has thorns and weeds and thistles in it. Verse seven, others fell among the thorns. The thorns came up and choked them out. This looks like a decent area uh, to throw some seed, but as the seed is thrown, um, weeds start growing up around it. And you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't do my job plowing the field. I didn't do my job getting all of the weeds and the thorns out of it. The weeds will choke out the seed because the weeds eat all of the nutrients in the soil and drink up all the water and and grow over the plants and over the the seedlings so that they take all the sunlight. They just destroy the, the plant. They choke out the life. And you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, weeds were given as a part of the curse that they will grow better and faster than anything else out there. So they're growing better and faster than the seed that's been planted. That's the thorny soil. It's a word that's used for thorns. It's used of the crown of thorns that's placed on Jesus' brow. It's also used of um, kind of like a a tumbleweed or like a thistle bush. It's used of different um, types of just disgusting weedy plants that just are the bane of our human existence as taking care of a lawn. And uh, you all read the blog that, that I put out on Friday. It is just the worst to open your door and and just look at your beautiful lawn and see weeds popping up. How did they get there? You know, I just mowed the lawn yesterday and they're popping up. That's what Jesus is describing. They're choking everything else, killing it, and growing in abundance themselves. The final soil, the fourth soil. Others fell, verse 8, on the good soil. So we've got the roadside soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. And this one yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Many people 
tend to think that what Jesus is referring to is the amount of crop that's being produced. And it, it could be that, but it wouldn't be as spectacular necessarily if it were talking about I planted one seed and all of these plants grew or gained more seed that grew and grew and grew. Most commentators would say that, that this is referring to um, the financial prosperity that these plants would bring. And I think that's important for what Jesus is going to say later. So this is, they produce an, in an abundance, and the farmer is then able to take the produce and sell it and make a profit, 30, 60, or 100-fold. So if this farmer spends a dollar on a seed bag, he gets $100 back for what he spent. I believe that's what Jesus is saying, and I, I think that it will come in handy when we talk about um, what this all means. So, verse 9, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Jesus knows that what he has said is so abundantly simple that many people would go, yeah, okay. I mean, if you just read that story without any explanation, just, hey, everybody, there was a sower. And he went out, grabbed some seed, threw it on the road. It got trampled. Birds came and ate it. Threw it where there were the, the bed, bedrock of limestone, and it couldn't grow. Threw it where there were thorns, and they choked it out. And threw it in really good soil, and it gave him a lot of financial prosperity. Have a nice day. Um, I think most people would go, yeah. I could have said that story. Wait, you're the teacher of Israel. You're the son of God. And you just said something that I could have taught. That makes, that's, that's not helpful. That doesn't make any sense to me. And so I think that's why at the end he says, he who has an ear to hear, press into this. There's something that's confusing in here. There's something that you've got to press in further here. So don't give up. Don't give up. Luke actually uses the word, uh, he who has an ear to hear, keep on here. Let him keep on. It's in the imperfect. Just You're going to have to hang on tight because I'm going to be saying things to you that you're going to need to keep on pressing in to understand and to learn. And he gives us that invitation today as well. If you have an ear to hear, let him truly hear. Verse 10, there's a bit of an interlude here, and we discussed most of these verses, so we'll take them very quickly. We discussed most of them last week, so we'll go through them rather quickly. But verse 10, the disciples come and they say, why do you speak in parables? Again, parables are not sermon illustrations, because if they were, they're terrible illustrations, because Jesus has to explain his illustrations, which I've done that, and that's just the worst. It's like when you tell a joke and then you have to explain the joke. It doesn't make it funny, like, well, that was a waste of time. Um, this is the exact same thing. If this is a sermon illustration and Jesus has to explain it after the fact, he's a failure of a teacher and he's not using the right thing. These aren't sermon illustrations. They're meant to conceal. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to say. They ask, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answers, verse 11, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. It's been graciously given to you. That word granted literally means without a cause. It has been given to you without a cause. You did nothing to deserve it or to earn it. I have graciously given it to you. It's used elsewhere in the Gospels when Jesus says, the Pharisees have hated me. You religious leaders have hated me without a cause. It's translated without a cause. So I've gifted this to you. I've granted it to you. You didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, so you can't be prideful about knowing these things. Likewise, verse 12, whoever has to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. So I'm speaking to, 
to you that it has been given to you and you're going to receive and bear much fruit with what I'm saying. But to others who will not believe in me, will not believe my words, I'm not only taking away the truth from them in this moment by concealing it, but also they're going to fall away and lose the truth that they once held on to, whatever truth that was that they held on to. Therefore, verse 13, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears. They've closed them up and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Note, even in those short verses, we have once again the paradox of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God says to you it's been gifted, and it hasn't been gifted to them. I have not given them the gift of hearing. But here in Isaiah, he says, if they would truly hear, then they would understand. If they would not close their eyes, they would see. So, if you would desire to know and would desire to see and perceive, then you would be able to understand. This is what we talked about with John 3.16. If the new birth happens by God alone, what can we do? What part do we have? Well, we can ask. We can ask. So verse 16, blessed are you, your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. Truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So then hear now the parable of the sower. He's going to explain it to them. And again, this is a sermon illustration because he has to explain the meaning of it. This is the sermon itself revealed from those who would uh, revealed to those who would believe and concealed um, from those who would not believe. Notice that he starts right in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. He instantly dives into the soil. He's going to go right back to his outline, four soils, and he's going to describe the point of those four soils. So notice, if we're going to figure out what's the point of this teaching, this parable, what's the point of it? I think one of the best questions to ask when asking, how do we get the main point, is what do we know is not the main point by what Jesus is not saying? Let me give you two things, two observations. Jesus says nothing about the sower and his skill, nothing. This isn't about evangelism. This isn't about sowing the seed. Nothing is said about the sower and his skill. The difference between seed that bears the harvest and seed that is eaten by birds has absolutely nothing to do with the method that the sower uses when he casts the seed. It's not about that. So it's not a parable about how to share the gospel. There's no mention of, um, you know, he was using a certain seed bag when he threw it on the roadside, but if he had changed to the, the Gucci seed bag, then he would have definitely been able to Uh, plant the right seed. No, it's not about what bag he's using. It's not about what clothes he's wearing. This should free us in evangelism, by the way. There's an implication here that that stuff really doesn't matter. Share the gospel faithfully in love, and you've done your job. You've done your job. Number two, nothing said about the quality of the seed. It's all the same. Wherever it goes, it's not the quality of the seed that bears the certain fruit. There's no problem with the seed. Um, If we share the gospel faithfully, we share the gospel faithfully. And many people today, um, as, you know, centuries and millennia before us, when they see that 
the faithful presentation of the gospel isn't producing what they desire in their hearers, namely salvation, they say we have to tweak the seed. We have to change the seed. The seed's the problem. And so they preach a a watered-down message. They preach anything but the gospel. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the sower. What's it all about? Very clearly, it's all about the soils. It's all about the soils. Um, I had, I, I've preached uh, through the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus preaches this parable. I preached this a number of years ago. And um, I, don't, I don't ever resurrect a sermon and just use those sermon notes. I always start blank slate, you know, try to study as if it were the first time. But after I'm done, I go back to see, did I miss any quotes? Did I miss anything? And, and I went back, and my outline for the first time I preached through the sermon on the parable of the sower and the soils, my sermon outline is the sower, the seed, and the soils. And I went, yeah, if I spent the same amount of time on each of those things, I missed the point. Because it's not about the sower, it's not about the seed. It's all about the soil. The, the sower just sows. The seed, gospel, that's all you need to know. It's all about the soils. It's all about the soils. So Jesus explains it. Verse 19. The word of the kingdom is the seed. Um, Luke and, and Mark use uh, my word or the word of God. Um, it's, it's the gospel. You can put it in a nutshell. It's the gospel. Whenever anyone hears the gospel does not understand it, so there needs to be clarity in it, but doesn't receive it, doesn't understand it. The evil one comes, this is the the birds, the evil one is the birds, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. You kind of have to have like a a one-for-one key uh, in the, the side of your Bible. Sower equals anyone who shares the gospel. Seed equals the gospel. Birds equal Satan, soils equal hearts. You kind of have to do that in parables. And by the way, can I just tell you, you can't use that same key for every other parable. Um, I'll show you, for instance, some people will say, well, the sower, who's the sower? And they go, oh, the sower is Jesus. How do you get to Jesus? Go to, drop down to verse 37. Jesus said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So people go, oh, he says the sower is the son of man. So let's put it back, put that key back into the parable of the soils. We have the sower is the son of man. But when he describes that in verse 37, it's in the context of a completely different parable. So you can't mix. Don't do that with parables. Sometimes he uses the exact same analogy, meaning a completely different uh, purpose uh, or person in mind. So don't mix up the symbols that are in the parables. Get a good key for the parable, but then don't mix up those symbols. So we have the sower is anyone who shares the gospel. The seed is the gospel. The soils. What are the soils? Uh, Just write down Luke chapter 8, verse 12. This is the parallel passage. And Jesus says this. uh, the the, The roadside soil is where the devil comes and takes away the word. And he says specifically, out of their hearts. So this isn't an implication. This is explicitly saying that the soil is a human heart. The soil is the seed of your affections, the seed of your emotions, your will, um, your, uh, the purpose of your life, uh, where it all comes from. That's your heart. 
So if we wanted to summarize everything that Jesus starts with, we could say that this parable is about the assorted stages of preparedness in your heart, preparedness to receive the word. It's not about the way that the sower sows. It's not about the seed. It's about the soil. And just one, one more little caveat. It's also not about the amount of fruit that's being born. And I want to say this carefully because I believe this parable is all about the human preparedness in our souls and our hearts to receive the word. I think that's the point of this parable. Many people take it to it's about bearing fruit. And we're going to talk about what that means to bear fruit. But so many people do that to such a degree that they say, all I want are results. If I preach, I want results. And they usually have to put a label to those results that can be seen, like numbers. I want more people in the pews. I want more uh, money being given. I want So they have results in their mind. And if you have results in your mind to get something, then you're going to tweak the means to get that end. Um, in the context of this parable, if you just want f- like a foliage, just dense, thick foliage, um, you would switch your seed bag out to dandelion seeds and throw those out because those will grow instantly. I mean, you, you don't have to do anything and those start sprouting up. So it's not about getting results. This parable is about how prepared are you to receive the word. So roadside soil. Roadside soil are stiff-necked. We're just going to go back through our four-point outline. Roadside soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, and the good soil. The roadside soil, Jesus describes for us what happens. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the word. The evil one comes and snatches it away, verse 19. What has been sown in his heart, same as uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 12, sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. They're stiff-necked is a great word to describe these people. Is, uh, Exodus chapter 32 verse 9 describes stiff-necked people. 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 14 says, You have stiffened your neck against me. You are not moldable. You're not teachable. You're not pliable. Jeremiah 19 uh, verse 15 says the same thing. They have stiffened my, their necks so that they might not hear my words. They have stiffened their necks so that they might not hear my words. I'm speaking, but they will not receive. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 12, Zedekiah, a very wicked man, did the same thing. God says, you have stiffened your neck, you've hardened your heart. Stephen also says this about the Pharisees when he is being stoned. Acts chapter 7, verse 51, you have stiffened your necks, you, you have stiff necks and hard hearts, you will not receive, you will not believe. Remember, we're talking about the road that's trampled by feet, Right? This heart has been trampled underfoot by the multitude of iniquities that continually walk across it. The sin that continually goes back and forth over it. You've hardened your heart because of that. It's also not fenced in. This is an area where anyone can go over it. So it lies exposed to any evil that would come stomping along the path. It's never plowed by any conviction. It's never cultivated by contrition or guilt or genuine repentance. And Jesus is not describing atheists per se here. A lot of people just go, well, this is atheists. Don't believe in God. Jesus is describing the Pharisees. These people believe God exists. God is one. They quote that verse from Deuteronomy 6 all the time. 
and yet they have hardened their hearts so that they will not receive the word. They're calloused to the word of God. That's the roadside soil. The rocky soil, verse 21 and 22. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He hears and immediately receives with joy. But we know the rocky soil has a bedrock. It's a shallow soil. So he has no firm root in himself, verse 21. It's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. The soil is shallow. So these are shallow hearers and shallow responders. They respond immediately, but they respond superficially. It's a temporary response. It's an emotional response. I think in modern evangelicalism, if you were to ask, what's the defining characteristic of a new convert? The defining characteristic of somebody who just gave their life to Jesus Christ. I think most people would say, oh, they're so happy. They're so happy. And they should be, and they are. They're joyful. But if you want a better emotion to see out of somebody who has just been saved, it's mourning, it's weeping over their sin and running to the cross and seeing forgiveness at the cross. I would say it's a sobriety. True sorrow over your sin. So somebody comes to you and they say, I want to accept Jesus. And you you try to deal with their sin and they don't want any of that. I just want Jesus because I want a better life. I want an easier life. I want things to go well. And this is the kind of soil you are dealing with. This is why uh, the gospel should not be given as an emotional call first and foremost. It's given as an intellectual call first and foremost. It's given as a charge to people's wills. Um, This is how all of those phony TV preachers get millions and millions of dollars in people because they're preying on their emotions. Lord willing, this is a church that preaches to the intellect and to the will. Emotions are important and they will follow. But intellect and will is what we target through the gospel and through the truth. So since they're emotional, they're superficial, they're temporary, they don't have deep roots into the gospel and they wither quickly. They're the polar opposite of the first soil. The first soil will not receive anything. The second soil receives everything instantly and responds very, very excitedly to uh, the seed. But here's the main point with this second soil. There's no longevity of growth. It's there for a moment and then it goes away. Let me just give you some verses. John chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. If you abide, abide, just remain. If you stay here, you're my disciple. If somebody says, I'm a disciple and is there for a while and then leaves, then you're not my disciple because you didn't remain. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. If we are true disciples, if we remain in Christ to the end. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, continue in the faith, grounded, steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. So what happens to the people like this second soil that are here for a while and then leave and we never see them again? That follow Jesus for a while and then I don't want any of that. 
First John chapter two, verse 19 would say they went out from us because they were never really of us. So soil number two tells us that longevity is the important factor of your fruit. Longevity. Something. Remember the fruit that the produce um, bears 30 to 60 to 100 fold of pros- uh, prosperity to the farmer. Um, wealth to the farmer. It's useful. If you just sprout up for a little while and then die, you're not useful to the farmer. You can't be sold. That doesn't help. But specifically, Jesus says that the bedrock, what is the bedrock underneath the second soil? Verse 21, the bedrock, the limestone bedrock is affliction or persecution because of the word. The roots start growing down and you are afflicted. You suffer. You go through trials. You go through persecution and you say, I'm out. I'm done. That's it. Why? This is one of the discussion questions that I have for you to to meditate on. But why would somebody say, I want to be a part of the body of Christ and hang on to that mirage until troubles come and they say, I don't want any more. Why would they go through that? Why would they play that game? Maybe as you preach the gospel, all they hear is, if I turn to Christ, the problems that I have in my life will go away. So I want problems to go away, so I'll join your church. And then as problems are there and get worse, because Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. You say, I didn't sign up for this. All I know is that Jesus' words here ring true with the rest of the word of God that says trials and suffering for a believer are good because they're proving to you that you have no bedrock. As you go through trials, as you go through suffering, and your roots are growing down deep, if you were a phony believer, those trials and those suffering would make you say, I want to jump ship and I'm done. I'm out. You would have hit the bedrock of your ability to follow Jesus. I'm done. But as you go through suffering, you go through trials, they're going to show you that your roots are much deeper into the character of God and that you can weather those storms. Therefore, you're good. They are. And this is one of the many reasons why they are. That's the rocky soil. Number three, the thorny soil. This is very simply a heart that is enthralled with sin. Verse 22, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Luke and Mark include desires and pleasures for other things. So it's a love for money, pleasure for other things other than God, and a worry about the cares of the world. The soil has been well plowed. It's deep enough for the seed to go in, but there's impurities in it. There's weeds, there's thorns, there's things that are still there that are going to choke it out. And you can't really see them, but as time goes on, they grow and they choke out the word. Luke chapter 16, verse 13 says, you cannot serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other or be despising the one and cling to the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. The thorny soil is trying to do just that. I can follow Jesus and enjoy my sin at the same time. And the thorny soil is a very clear indicator you can't. One is going to choke out the other and sin will not be choked out. If you are living in it and relishing it and enjoying it, You can't choke that out with the word of God as you're just living for it. So you need to turn. 
You need to turn from a love for anything other than God and turn to him and him alone. First John two fifteen through 16, you know this. Don't love the world or anything in the world. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all of those things aren't from the Father. They are passing away. Don't love those things. This does not mean that you can't enjoy the world. You can't enjoy the things that God has given to you. Even as we study financial peace, you can enjoy the money that God has given to you as you're a good steward of it. But you have to enjoy it appropriately. And obviously there are certain things that God has said that we are to abstain from completely. So material wealth is not inherently evil. Pleasure isn't inherently evil. When properly prioritized, they can be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. But it is evil to love the gifts more than the giver. Just like the rich young ruler. Uh, We're going to study that next week in Family Bible Hour. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he goes away sad. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he leaves grieved because he knows I love my property and my money more than I love Jesus, so I can't follow him. I have to only follow one. That's the choice we all have to make. So this soil has something in common with the rocky soil. And it's this, it doesn't bring any fruit to maturity. That's what Luke chapter 8 verse 14 says. No fruit is brought to maturity. Starts to grow a little bit and then it's choked out. Starts to grow a little bit and then it's withered. All three of these first soils are unbelievers. Even though these two look like they could be believers. It's only the fourth and final soil that's truly saved. Verse 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil... This is the man who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. He hears, he understands, he bears fruit and he brings forth a prophet. Notice and be encouraged by the fact that not all Christians bear the exact same amount of fruit. Some 30, some 60, some a hundredfold. How many times have you been discouraged in your walk with the Lord? As you're walking and you look at somebody, you go, I will never be like them. They are just on fire for the Lord and you get discouraged. God says there's going to be varying degrees of your produce. It's not the amount that matters. What matters is this. All Christians must have fruit. All Christians aren't equal in their amount of fruit. They're not equally fruitful. But all Christians have fruit. And their fruit is, number one, obvious, and number two, lasting. A believer's fruit is obvious and lasting. How many times have you known a friend that you desperately want to believe they're saved, and so you're trying as hard as you can to find fruit? Just, they, they, they did this, they didn't do, they're trying as hard. No, a believer's fruit should be obvious and should be lasting. This can only occur in a heart that's been well cultivated, well plowed, made ready. So the question that must be asked, if this parable is all about how we receive the word, if this parable is all about the readiness of our souls to hear God's word, the question has to be asked, how do we cultivate our hearts to receive the word properly? There is a sense where we can prepare our hearts. Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14 And Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, they're commands that God gives to prepare your hearts to receive the word. But there's also a greater sense where just left to ourselves, we would only grow harder, more calloused. We wouldn't receive the word with meekness, like James discusses. Only God can truly plow our hearts and prepare us to receive the word. That's why we sing what we sing. God, prepare my heart. Because I want to prepare it, but I can't do it fully, properly. You need to prepare my heart. 
we can ask and we should ask. And by the way, as we do share, as we do scatter the seed in evangelism, the results of sharing the gospel are always different. And even in this parable, only one out of four soils receives and is saved. So the odds are against us. So don't be discouraged. As you're sharing the gospel and you have these different responses, maybe one day it'll be the thorny soil. Maybe one day it'll be the rocky soil. But maybe one day God will bless you with good soil to be able to share the gospel and encourage your heart as you're faithful to proclaim the gospel. We share nonetheless, regardless of the results. So, conclusion. This parable is about two things. Number one, a person's response to the word of God is dependent on the condition of their heart. A person's response to the word of God is dependent on the condition of their heart. That's exactly what we studied last week. The Pharisees' hearts were hardened already, so they wouldn't receive. So Jesus says, I know you're not going to receive, so I'm not going to teach you anymore. And number two, fruit is the only evidence that one has heard the word rightly. Fruit is the only evidence that one has heard the word rightly. Two of these four souls spring up instantly and start growing, but then are choked out. So what is it that shows a true disciple? It's longevity, faithfulness, and fruit bearing. So I ask you, where is your heart? If the way that we receive the word of God depends on our hearts. Where is your heart? Are you receptive? Which soil do you most identify with? And, and where have you been in the past? I think we've all been some aspect of these soils at one point or another in our lives. Are you receptive? Do you pursue the cares of the world? Are you easily shaken by trials? Do you expect God to give you a comfortable life because you are claiming to follow him? Are you teachable and humble? Where's your heart? And number two, where's your fruit? Where's your fruit? If you sum up all of the fruit that you can have, it's just two categories. Love God, love people. How well do you love God? Do you love his word? Do you love reading it? Do you love meditating on it, memorizing it? Do you love his bride? Do you love being with his people? Do you love talking about Jesus to others? Do you love talking to him in prayer? And finally, do you love people? Do you love God? Do you love people? Do you love speaking the, the word of God to others? Do you love community? Do you love fellowship? Do you love evangelism? Do you love hospitality? Do you love God and do you love people? That's just the most generic way you can say you have fruit, loving God and loving people. So I think it'd be appropriate for us to end by asking God through prayer, through a song, to be everything to our vision, to be everything to our sight, the cares of this world go away. The, the bedrock, the limestone bedrock of the persecution, the trials and the suffering we might go through, that that wouldn't matter. That, that would just further evidence the fact that our roots are growing deep into the character of God. That nothing be to us more than Jesus is to us. Let's pray that together as we sing. God, I pray that you would truly be our vision, that you would be everything to us this day, and that as we follow you and plead with you to cultivate our hearts on a daily basis, we would become receptive good soil that would bear much fruit, that would produce for you much glory. God, we love you and we want you to be pleased in our lives. So do that work even now as we sing and ask you to take control of our hearts and be our vision.